0: Hi, my name is Bill. The Old Testament reading is found in Job 1, 13 to 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck Down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you the word of the Lord.
1: Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, verses 15 through 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Caitlin. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John eleven twenty eight to 35. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your word to us. We ask that your spirit would come and let your word speak into our hearts and into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series on emotions and relationships, and it's called Dysfunctional Family, uh, obviously playing on the uh, the phrase dysfunctional family, but the family we're talking about is not simply uh, the families that we grew up in uh, or, you know, the families that we have right now, but rather it's referring to the family of God, the household of faith. In fact, when the New Testament talks about the church, one of its favorite metaphors or languages for the church is the household household. Uh, the family, and so when we talk about this dysfunctional family, it's a way of talking about all of our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, spiritual moms and dads, all of that stuff, our friendship, all every ca- category of relationship. But instead of uh, talking about these categories of relationships by uh, specific categories, we're actually going to we, we've been working our way through it using the lens of emotion. And this might seem a little bit odd. Like, why, why talk about emotions? Well, one of the reasons to do this is because emotions are a part of being human, and they're not a lesser part of being human. You know, sometimes we think, well, the better part of being human is to be rational, but the lower, lesser part of being human is to be emotional. But actually, to be fully human is to be in the image of God. The Scriptures tell us that God made us in His image, and then the stories in the Scripture show us a God who is very much moved, moved, uh, even moved by emotion. So there's a God who weeps, there's a God who gets angry, there's a God who rejoices, there's a God who grieves, there's a God who is moved by us. In fact, we see Jesus not only um, responding to people's emotions, but displaying them himself. So Jesus, as the fully and truly human being, is kind of our picture of this. Okay, and so we can look at him and say, to be fully and truly human is to be whole. In our emotions. In fact, one of the ways to recover the image of God in you and in me is to allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to health and wholeness, even in our emotions. And it is our emotions that deeply, deeply affect our relationships with one another. So on week one, we said, what is emotion? And we said, well, emotions are a pre-reflective appraisal of the world based on our concerns. Now, this sounds so like, wait a minute, what, what, are you, what are you saying? Well, it's pre-reflective because it's something that sort of arises before we think about it. We don't assess the situation and then say, okay, get mad. No, we just find ourselves getting mad. So it's it's a pre-reflective thing that we're doing. And what is the thing we're doing? We're assessing the situation. We're appraising the situation. And we're appraising a situation based on something we care about. So a few weeks ago when uh, Dr. Adam Pelser was teaching on anger, he said, anger is the appraisal of an injustice and it comes out of a concern for justice. So if you don't care about justice, you probably will never get angry. But if you do care about justice, there there might be things that arouse your anger. And so anger is a way of saying I am noticing, I am perceiving an injustice and and I have a concern for things to be just. Um, uh, Maybe a simpler way of saying this is that emotions are the eyes of our heart. They're how our heart begins to perceive the world around us. In, In the second week of this series, we also mapped out... Uh, This thing that emotions actually have themes. They have a core theme. There was a social psychologist named Paul Ekman who set out decades ago to prove that uh, emotions are just sort of cultural things. They're just, you know, very frivolous, uh, superficial kind of things, and instead discovered that in every culture, even pre-literate culture, even cultures without any influence of, of Western culture... Uh, demonstrated the same core themes to these emotions that anger is about obstruction or, or injustice, sadness is about loss, fear is about a threat, all of these different things. So there is a core theme, but they also have these scripts The first time you experience an emotion carries with it a powerful story, a powerful narrative. And so the next time you experience that emotion, that script begins to show up again. So maybe the first time you experienced fear was when a a parent died. And so that feeling of abandonment or of loss might be provoked anytime someone is gone for a long period of time. And so these scripts tend to play up. There's also triggers, and we talked about how that might be bad news because our brain can keep adding triggers. So things that did not used to make you scared might later in life make you scared. But we also talked about the good news in this, how the Holy Spirit, when we welcome His work in us, can actually help us to form new pathways in our brain so that the same thing triggers the the, the, the emotion and we can reroute it by digging new trenches for the water to flow, so to speak. And so these things that happen, we, we... feel the onset of something, and then we, the, the Holy Spirit helps us to redirect and to move in a different way. Well, we've talked about fear and anger, and this morning we're going to talk about sadness. Sadness. Now, it, it may be interesting because why talk about sadness? Uh, maybe you feel like, you know, from an early age we're kind of conditioned to realize or maybe even to know that sadness has an alienating effect on the people around us. You, don't, you know that people don't like to be around sad people. And we learn this from Winnie the Pooh, you know. Eeyore is not the most popular animal in the 100-acre wood. <laughs> so when, when, when Pooh says, wonderful morning, isn't it? Eeyore says, oh, is it, you know. What makes it a good morning? And there's this sense of, oh, Eeyore, for goodness sake, we all want to be around Winnie the Pooh, you know, stuffed with fluff, you know. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. But Eeyore, I don't want to be around Eeyore this seems- so So early on in life, we begin to realize that sadness has an alienating effect, that when we are sad, people kind of go like this, uh... And that when someone else is sad, we kind of go, uh. And we long for connectedness with others. So I think what we become good at as we grow older is we become good at compartmentalizing our sadness. About tucking it away in a corner somewhere and saying, well, I don't know if I experience sadness. I don't know if I'm sad about anything. Life is awesome. Everything is awesome. I know. Something about this mic makes me just want to sing more this morning. But... Uh, <laughs> We want to mask our sadness. We want to compartmentalize it. But what is sadness? When sociologists and and psychologists talk about sadness, all of them say in some variation of this that sadness is connected to loss. Sadness is a response to loss. Whether the loss is a perceived loss or an actual loss, it's a response to loss. And we could add more to this. This is where culture and family of origin kind of comes in, but there's a there's a certain context specific um shape to that sadness. So if you grew up in a particular home where it was like oh everything was a big deal, then your co- your way of expressing sadness is very external and very outward. Or maybe you grew up in a home that was very stoic. We don't cry, we just move on and fix the problem, you know? Then your your way of expressing sadness was non-existent. It was to sort of withdraw and pretend that it it didn't happen. There's also things that our culture or family of origin does where it teaches us to to express sadness to the same magnitude of the loss. So there's that old English proverb, don't cry over spilt milk. In other words, there's losses like milk, that's not worth crying about. Oh, okay, okay. So make sure your sadness meets the magnitude of the loss. Like, okay, great. There's also... This thing that we learn that sadness, the duration of our sadness, must match the permanency of the loss. So if you lose something temporarily, you say, ah, that's okay. You know, it's sort of like the, the sports post game press conference, which every sports post game press conference is identical, no matter what the sport. You know, to the losing team, it's like, well, they made more plays than we did. We're on to next week, you know, or next game, or next round, or whatever. It's just, let's just move on because they don't want the permanency of that loss. Now, on the flip side, when you talk to someone who's lost a loved one, this is why it's impossible to say, you just need to stop being sad because this side of heaven, the sense of permanency of that loss is pretty permanent, feels pretty permanent. So the duration of that sadness is going to last a little while. So, it's, a, it's not helpful to say to people, well, you, you, you've been, it's been a year now since you lost them. Time to not be sad. So I'm sorry, have I still lost them? Is the loss still permanent? Yeah, then the sadness still is here. That the sadness, the duration of the sadness will match, it's the permanency of the loss. So, what kind of losses do we experience in life? I mean, maybe you're thinking, well, Glenn, maybe this applies to some people. But, you know, I, I really, I've, I've had it pretty good. I, I, I haven't really experienced too much. Actually, I think all of us in some way have experienced loss. It's just that we haven't been taught to name those losses. So let me help w- with a few examples. What kind of losses do you experience? Well, first of all, there are the losses of attachments. This is a psychology word for talking about relationships, right? The loss of our attachments. Now, a loss of a relationship does not just mean a death. It actually also happens when the status of that relationship changes. When children grow up, there's a loss. That that attachment of holding a newborn or helping a toddler, all of a sudden, it's changing, and parents know this. But a lot of times, parents aren't told that it's okay to name that sadness, to say, this is hard, this is weird. The, the nature of our attachment has changed from completely dependent and independent to, are they ever going to call? <laughs> and so you start Facebook stalking them because you're experiencing the loss of an attachment there. But it also happens even in friendships when all of a sudden you, you were super close. One summer you were vacationing with these friends, and the next summer you're like, hey man, what you doing this summer? Oh, we're just doing some stuff, you know, like, don't want to tell them we're camping with another group of friends this year, you know. And you just, you feel it. It's changed. It's okay. It's part of life. But we have to name those losses of attachments. There's also losses of status. If you've ever experienced a change in your job. Maybe you used to be senior vice president and da-da-da-da-da, and all of a sudden that changed, and you entered a new setting, and nobody knew who you were, and you were starting kind of in a new town and in a new… Co- That's a loss. It's a loss of a certain kind of status that you carried. It's okay to name that loss. I, I was thinking through the help of a few of you, even one gentleman this morning that helped me see this. This is especially true for the men and women that serve in the military that are deployed and during deployment they're explaining to me during during deployment you experience this tremendous sense of not status in a bad way but you're, you're mission critical you are depended on for all of these different things and then you come home and they're like yeah i don't need you anymore i mean you could do carpool if you wanted and you're trying to figure out where do i where, what where do i fit how do i belong this is one of the reasons why men and women in our community struggle with finding their place on reentry because where where is that same station in life that I had when I was over there. Status is not a bad word. Status is a way, it's a way of saying, our, our, locating ourselves in life, our station in life. And that changes. A third kind of loss is a loss of meaning. Loss of meaning can happen when, when someone has, has lost their faith. You know, if you've ever walked with someone as their faith is unraveling, the thing not to do is to start preaching harder at them give them more apologetics books. There is a place for those things, by the way. There's a good and beautiful place for that. But what we often miss is that when someone's faith is unraveling, they're actually going through a kind of grieving process. They're losing a faith of their childhood. They're losing a, a simplistic faith, a formulaic faith, a fundamentalist faith, whatever that may be. They're experiencing something like that. And so the first thing they need is for someone to share that grief with them. There's also loss of meaning can also come when when you realize your life doesn't match the goals or the ideals that you once had. I I know this might be hard for some of you to imagine this but the ideals that you're formulating in your 20s may not reflect your life in your 40s. It's coming. <laughs> There's coming a day where you'll wake up and look at your life and think this is not how I drew it up. This doesn't fit my ideals. And you have to wrestle with that sense of loss. Sometimes people call this a midlife crisis. I think it's just coming to the grips of saying, I had a previous way of defining a successful life. Here I wake up 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, and my life doesn't look like that. Now what? Now what? How do we name that loss? Losses can be acute, meaning a profound, painful, one-time event, like a death or, or, or loss of a job or something dramatic. Or it could be chronic, a series of just ongoing hardships and losses. Being in a bad marriage is a chronic kind of loss. It's a daily feeling of loss, of saying, this isn't the marriage I thought we were going to have. This isn't the friendship I thought, this isn't the a chronic kind of loss. When you think about the characters in the Bible and you think, about people, men or women who experience loss. There's a lot. I actually think about Rachel. There's a, it became a saying among the prophets that Rachel is crying in Ramah, who will comfort her? You know, there's a kind of grief that truly is inconsolable. The prophets acknowledge that. There's been the sound of great weeping in Ramah, Rachel's tears, who will comfort her? There is a deep, inconsolable sense. But maybe the character that we find ourselves going to a lot is Job. Job, right away in chapter 1, verse 13 through 19, we heard it read, but if you were to kind of map it out to say, what were all the losses Job experienced? Well, first he loses a bunch of his animals. It's basically his property, his business. That's related to his status the loss of status, that middle one, is a big one for Joe. But then you go on and you, and you realize he loses his sons and daughters. Talk about attachments, losing the ones close to him. But actually, as you follow the story, his relationship with his wife becomes strained because she doesn't understand his sadness. And so their marriage becomes strained. Couples who walk through a grief, the losing of a child or something like that, it can be extremely challenging on the marriage because... They don't necessarily experience sadness the same way. And we see this in Job where his own marriage becomes estranged because of the losses and the way he's experiencing these losses. Then he has friends, and then he begins to lose his friends. This is a story of a man who is losing not just status and stuff, but losing the people and the relationships and the attachments that are closest to him. But actually, there's something even deeper going on in the book of Job. The Hebrews put the book of Job in a category of books called the wisdom literature. Now, the Hebrews, when they classify the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, their scriptures, there's the Torah, the first five books, which is all about instructions and teaching. There's the prophets, which tell the story of God calling his people back to himself. Starts from 1 Samuel, goes all the way through what you would think are the prophets' books. But there's also this section called the writings. It's where all the poetry is found. Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Songs, and Job. Now, sometimes we don't realize it, but Job is one of those books. The writings, this Hebrew poetic kind of book. It's a story. And in this story is the story of a man who has the worst day imaginable. Why is this story being told? It's told in direct confrontation to Deuteronomy 28. So, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you will obey God, if you'll do all these things, you'll never get sick. You'll never have calamity. You'll have everything work out. Your kids will all love you and love God. Life will be amazing. And if you don't follow God, then none of those things will happen. And Job says, that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story. See, the the Bible doesn't work like a reference book. It's not an authoritative reference book where we just kind of flip through, find a verse, and I'm standing on this verse. What you need to do, no, don't stand on a verse. Enter the story. And when you enter the story of Scripture, you realize we all kind of go through a journey like this where we, we follow Jesus and we think life is simple. It should just work out this way. And then we encounter moments where we say, hang on a minute. I had a professor in seminary who said, Deuteronomy and the Proverbs, they kind of say, do these things and life will work out this way. And Ecclesiastes and Job say, we did and it didn't. Both feelings matter in the life of faith. Both feelings matter in the life. So Job is not just experiencing loss of status and loss of attachments. What's he experiencing? A loss of meaning his previous way of making sense of the world, his clean-cut view of life. Do this. Life will work out this way. So easy. It's so simple. It's just amazing. And then he says, hang on a minute. No, it's not. What is going on? Job, like so much of the wisdom literature, is an invitation to enter into this and wrestle with God to say, what else is going on? Well, if Job's Wife and friends were unable to walk well with him through sadness. What does it take to walk with others through sadness? What can we learn from this? I want to give us three hopefully helpful things about how we can walk with others through sadness. And this will help us, I I, I think, to become safe places for one another, but also to become comfortable on our own to be able to share the sadnesses in our own life with one another. The first and maybe the most important one of all is give them the gift of presence. Give them the gift of presence, of being there, of sitting with them. You know, we're so quick to rush to answers or truisms or refrigerator magnet sayings. Someone experiences the death of a loved one. Well, God needed a flower. It will all work out in the end. You might even be saying things that are true. It's just not the time. When people who've studied grief, I was reading on this quite a bit over the last couple of years, and one of the things I discovered is that it's very, very often the first phase of grief is what they call an inarticulate phase. It's a phase where you don't know what you're feeling. So if you're trying to be a friend to someone and you say, hey, man, how are you? Most people who've experienced especially profound grief will say, I don't know. And so then you're like, oh, okay, well, anyway, you don't know what to do, and you just kind of move on. A... Not only is it a good thing not to ask, how are you, right in the moment of loss, but B, understand that because this is an inarticulate phase, they don't know. And the best thing you can do is sit in that I don't know, sit in that don't know moment with them. Sit quietly. If they want to cry, you cry. If they want to recount a memory, let them recount a memory. Don't say a word. Be there. Be there. I was thinking about the people that are going up to Royal Family Kids Camp this week, these foster kids. You think a week, what are we going to do? Are we going to be intense counselors for a week? No, We're gonna, they're going to play with these kids. One of the most beautiful things they're going to do, they're going to throw a birthday party for each of these kids. Because who knows when the last time someone threw them a party was. It's one way to experience the gift of presence. I've been with people where For weeks, all we did was sit. Didn't talk too much, but just sit. Just stay. A lot of times we want to avoid that because it feels awkward, it feels uncomfortable, but I'm telling you, the gift of presence is one of the most beautiful things we can give one another. To just say, I'm so sorry. I was talking to a friend recently who was recounting a time in his life when he lost a parent. He said he would see his old friends from college who knew about this and they just didn't know what to say to him. They just kind of avoided it. Oh, <laughs> just move on. And then he saw an, a, a, a professor who hadn't seen him and just this guy just slumped his body and came up to him and just gave him a huge hug. I'm so sorry. Just stay in that moment. Stay in that moment. Don't hurry out of that moment. The gift of presence. Secondly, let them give voice to lament. You know, lament is all over the Psalms. Two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. And lament at their core, at the core of a lament is a protest. At the heart of a lament is a protest that says, life should not be this way. And if you think for a moment God is worried about that, reread Genesis 1 and 2. God knows what life should be like, and it's not that. It's not sickness and disease and divorce and death. Di- it's not. And so when you say, it should not be this way, I'm mad, I hate this, I think God says, I join you in that. This is wrong. We can name it as evil. We can name it as wrong. But when someone is giving voice to the lament, that's not the time to correct their theology. <laughs> that's not the moment to say, well, ish, you know. That's not the time to give them, a, a, you know, N.T. Wright's book on hope and let me fix your, your eschatological sense of hope right now. There might be a time far, far down the road, but right now that's not the time. Let them get it out. Every bit of their lament. Once I sat with a, with a young man who was recounting to me a period of childhood, um, an incident that happened in his childhood that was very painful and he had never really talked about it. It had been tucked away. And through counseling and through great work with the therapist, he was beginning to face that event, and he told me about it. And in that moment, all of the emotion was coming up because of that event, and he used this awful curse word and said, this is what I want to say to God, Mm -mm, blank, blank. And I looked around the coffee shop like, oh, man, I hope nobody else heard that. I wanted to pull my hoodie over my head. I didn't, because in that moment, That's what he needed to say. That's not the moment to correct someone, rebuke them. Hey, bro, too far, brother. All things work together. (laughs) Let them give voice to that lament, even if it's a small lament, something that comes out at a moment that you weren't even really expecting. I was thinking earlier this week, you know, so Holly and I will celebrate 15 years of being married this August, and uh, on, our, on our wedding day, we got married down at Shove Chapel, we had the uh, reception down in, in Manitou somewhere, and we were on our way to, to stay at this place for our, for our first night, and we're in the limo, and I look over at my wife, and she's just weeping. I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing with my own loss of an ideal, you know, and, and I think, what's going on? <laughs> and I realized, I realized as I was talking to her that, that, that we were just leaving the reception where all of our friends from college had been together for the last time. We were all together. It was mid-August. Some of them were headed back to school. Some of, the, some of them had already graduated, and this was the last moment that all of us, there was like 30 or 40 of us that had come out, that, that were there far away, and we realized, this is it. I wasn't thinking about that but she was. <laughs> and so in that in that moment, in that moment I had to realize there's a loss that's being experienced here and I have to allow there to be room for this, to give voice to this. One of the things that that is easy for us to miss is we don't we don't always get flashing lights that tell us a person is about to lament. Get ready. I wish, I wish we had warning. We don't often. Have, so, so sometimes a lament might look like a form of someone saying, I just had the most horrid day. I had this report from the doctor and it was just terrible. And stop yourself because your first instinct is to say, oh, well, I, I've Googled this naturopathic cure for da-da-da-da-da-da. And have you ever tried six dozen oranges mixed with lime and, and a ginger root? And, and they're like, <laughs> look, anybody can give internet advice. But only a Christian can give incarnational presence. Only a Christian can give incarnational presence. Remember that in that moment. To say, wait a minute, are they, is this a lament they're giving voice to here? I need to give room for that. I need to help them name that loss. Thirdly, we've got to help them adjust to a new reality. So there's no such thing. In the phases of grief, roughly speaking, there's a silence phase, a lament phase, and then an adjustment to kind of an accepting of a new reality. But there is no going back. There is no, hey, can we just go back to how things were? Whatever it is that you're walking with someone through, a new job, an unemployment, change in relationship, all of that stuff, there's no sort of, let's just just return to how it was. Let's just pretend, you know, you know. I have a friend whose son got, suddenly got a virus, young son got a virus, and it immobilized his body. And even in recovering, he's, only, he's able to use a lot of his limbs, but the mo- nature of his mobility has greatly changed. There's no such thing as saying, hey, man, let's just go back to, you know, let's just take a vacation like this. Everything is different. And the best friends around him are the ones who say, hey, can we build a ramp In your house, can we can we uh, help you find a different home that doesn't have steps? Do do you need another vehicle, a van that's now wheelchair accessible? I mean, the best friends are the ones that help us adapt to a new kind of reality, not the ones who insist on returning us to the old reality. There is no returning to the old reality. I think if we become safe places to one another, we discover that sadness can actually be a pathway to intimacy and eventually even joy. I don't mean joy because, oh, we've moved on and forgotten. I don't mean that. I mean a different kind of joy. Sadness is this thing that often becomes a barrier in our relationships. But when we are able to express it and name it and share it, and it's met with safety and sharedness, what we experience then is intimacy. And out of that intimacy comes the gift of joy. You know, one of the most consistent and perhaps the most beautiful way that God meets us with joy this side of heaven is through relationships the joy of good friendships, the joy of good family, the joy of relationships. But we rob ourselves of that joy when we refuse the intimacy that is only possible by letting someone in to that sadness. Does that make sense? So I refuse to show my sadness, but in doing so, I've put up a barrier to intimacy and thus forfeited a joy that could be mine. I know as much as we've kind of jokingly referred to the movie Inside Out. It actually really does illustrate this, doesn't it? You see the the girl at the very end of the movie finally getting the courage to say, to name her sadness to name the sadness of moving to a new town, of losing her friends, of having to join a new team, of adjusting to her dad's new pace of life because of a different job. And all of a sudden, in naming the sadness to her parents, it allows them to bond, and in that bonding comes a new and deeper kind of joy. Sadness makes intimacy richer and deeper. Job didn't have the friends that he longed for. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than anyone we could have ever dreamed of. Jesus is not only the true and better Job. Jesus is the true and better friend of Job. He's the one who knows how to enter our sorrow with us. The story that we heard read in the gospel readings comes from John 11. And I'll just read the first part of this in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I know he will on the last day. And he says, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. And then Mary comes and she says the same thing. They both say the same thing. Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, when she sees Jesus, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then Mary, that, that was her last effort of strength. And then she just bursts into tears. And what I love about Jesus is when Martha wanted to talk, Jesus was ready to listen. And when Mary could only manage tears, Jesus wept too. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus, the man of sorrows. Jesus, the one who enters into our sadness with us and says, look, when, you ha- when you're full of questions and things that you want to know, I am, re- I am there to listen. I can take it, all of it. And when you're collapsing with no strength left, and the best you can do is to cry. And I am weeping with you. Jesus enters our sadness so that somehow in our sadness, we can know him. Somehow in the midst of it, we can know him. In the Old Testament, it says God is near the brokenhearted. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the brokenhearted. He is the the man of sorrows, the one who weeps, the one who suffers, the one who cries. Sometimes I wonder if we struggle with this idea of a relationship with God. We can't quite bond or attach to God because we think God doesn't want to see the dark side of our soul. Maybe you grew up with the impression that God only wants to see you when you're happy and when you're holy. Don't come to church when you're a mess. Don't come with your sin. Don't come with your sadness. Don't come with your tears and your complaints and your protests. Just come when you're cheery, would you? And maybe you have this impression because this is what your home was like. Maybe you had a parent that said, what's the matter with you? Stop crying. Move on. Toughen up. Men don't cry. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I want you to know this morning, whatever losses you're experiencing, small, big, one time or ongoing, Jesus is there to enter it with you. A couple years ago, I was... With my spiritual director, unable to articulate a sense of sadness that I was spiraling into. I, was, I don't know what's going on. And he said to me, he said, Glenn, do you have this sense that Jesus is waiting for you on the other side of this? I said, I don't know, maybe. And he said, because he's not. I was like, excuse me? He's not waiting for you on the other side of this. He's in this with you. He's in this with you. Jesus isn't waiting until you can climb the mountain again. Jesus is in the valley with you. Jesus isn't waiting until you can get your heart fixed and your, your, your soul right and you can clap and shout. it. Jesus isn't waiting for that. If the best you can do is cry, Jesus is weeping too. Jesus enters into our sadness. So that even in the midst of it, we can know.